0: A reading from Second Thessalonians. Paul, Saranus, and Timothy to the Church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We must always give thanks to God for you, brothers and sisters, as, it, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing therefore we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith during all your persecutions and the afflictions that you are enduring this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God and is intended to make you worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering for it is indeed just of God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to the the afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction separated from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he becomes when he comes to glorify to be glorified by his saints and to be marveled at on that day among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed to this end we will always pray for you asking that our God will make you worthy of his call and will fulfill by his power every good resolve and work of faith so that the name of our lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our god in the lord Jesus Christ the word of the lord
1: thanks be to god thank you for reading barbara second Thessalonians is a lot like first Thessalonians um, which should not be that remarkable that it would be similar in theme. Um, And we're reading it for Advent because it does address the perennial theme of these letters to the church in Thessaloniki about the second coming of Jesus. This imminent event that was expected in the lifetime of the apostles because of stuff that Jesus said when he was here. This generation will not pass away until all these things are revealed. And so we read these apocalyptic moments, these moments about the second coming of Jesus in the way that Jesus meant them, that there would, there would be things that are, would happen in the next generation, in his own lifetime, in the lifetime of his followers, that would be the coming of the kingdom of God, But they would be foreshadowings of this great and final day that is alluded to numerous times in this passage, and that is in our creed that he shall come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. But um, it's kind of cool how Paul, even though he's writing this letter, and it's very clear it's him later in the letter, it's very much him, he says that it's Paul, Sivanus, and Timothy, Paul, Silas, and Timothy these three traveling companions, these missional companions who have gone all over the world to start Christian communities, to tell the story of Jesus, which for early Christians was basically to open the Bible, which was the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, and show that Jesus had fulfilled all the things that the Old Testament had said the Messiah would do. And that movement... Um, really was what they were engaged in until um, the inclusion of the Gentiles. As Gentile Christians come into the fold, it is the story of the crucifixion of Jesus that gathers the most um, notice from them. That um, it was a scandal to, um, to some that Jesus would die such a horrible death, a prisoner's death, a slave's death, The law law of God says that cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. All through the Bible, when someone died a shameful death, they would hang them from a tree. And so Jesus dies a shameful death. And it's hard for people to wrap their mind around, how could this um, shameful death be something that produces salvation for the world? And it is in that shame, the shameful death of Jesus, that all the shame of the world is taken away and gets absorbed into his body, into his life, um, and ultimately into his death. Um, And so he is writing to this church that he loves so dearly. He's been bragging about them. Um, Whenever I go to conferences or meetings or when I was on vacation and I was at the West Point Chapel or I was at the conference at Duke, or I was um, talking to my friends in Indianapolis who are uh, pastors of churches there, priests, uh, ones at the cathedral there in Indianapolis, and the other ones at a church plant, a seven-year-old church plant in the suburbs. And um, I'd brag about you guys. I bragged about how you've gotten through the pandemic. I brag about how you show up for each other. I brag about how you pray the morning prayer and faithfully and I brag about all kinds of stuff about you. Um, And Paul's doing that here in this letter. He says, we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God. And he boasts about their steadfastness and faith during your persecutions and the afflictions you're enduring. That's another thing I brag about you to other church leaders that you guys have been through a lot. Um, We've been through a pandemic I don't think any of us have fully grasped what that means for our emotional state, for our, the way we see the world, um, all the things that came from that, that sowed distrust, disunity, um, and a certain sense of dread and doom, uh, that, that, that I felt certainly during that time, the ways we coped with that, the way I coped with alcohol, the way people coped with, with, uh, Drugs, the way people coped with anger, the way people coped with um, all sorts of ways of coping with the dis-ease that we experienced. Um, All of that has consequences, real-life consequences in our lives that we are still healing from. And then the afflictions that you've gone through um, just from being alive on planet Earth. Forget the pandemic, just all the other stuff. Um, Cancer. Um, other diseases, uh, other um, health problems, um, the afflictions and persecutions of family relationships being strained, um, of things that we expected to happen not happening, of employment situations that are abusive and terrible and cause us to despair. Um, you've been through all of that stuff. And I brag about you. I don't say your names and I don't say specific situations. But what I say is that I get to be an observer, a witness to your faith, how you get through this stuff. Um, Part of my job as a vicar and priest is to be a a, a midwife of sorts. My aunt is a midwife um, and practices midwifery, which I think is pretty cool. Um, And she's very much an earth mother, Gaia midwifery was the name of her uh, practice when she had it. She's since retired. But, um, you know, babies don't come at convenient hours and spiritual birth, new spiritual birth doesn't come at ordinary times. They come at zero dark 30. They come at the dark night of the soul. They come uh, when, when we've kind of given up on all the coping mechanisms that we've tried and tried again. Um, really, the spiritual birth of our life comes at the 11th hour when all hope is lost. And I've gotten to, to witness that in your lives um, to a small degree. And that midwifing that I've gotten to do is is like the greatest thing. And I brag about you all the time. Um, I brag about how you've, uh, you know, we're Episcopalians and we love beautiful buildings and, you know, all the grandeur and pomp of liturgy and all the things that go with the Episcopal Church for most Episcopalians in the country. Um, These cathedrals that were built by, you know, Vanderbilt and Andrew Carnegie and John Wanamaker and, you know, people that, like, club seals, uh, baby seals when they were on vacation and stuff. You know, they built these amazing buildings, but sometimes were terrible people. And, like, that's the Episcopal Church sort of, like, grandeur that um, we've, some of us have been part of. And yet, um, you know, we meet in, a, in an elementary school cafeteria. We do have the best fish tank of any church that I've ever seen. But, you know, even that is a, a kind of endurance um, to believe that this church can actually make it, um, that we can go the distance, that we're going to be together in that, and that someday there's going to be this church in Pflugerville and the surrounding Austin area that witnesses to the truth of Jesus Christ, the power of the gospel, to include people that have been excluded by the church, the power of the good news of Jesus, to say that no matter what you've done or what you've failed to do in life, that you are forgiven and you are loved and you are welcomed by God, ultimately without any reservation, that we've baptized people in the creek, that we've baptized people in the lake, that we will continue to baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teach them to observe everything that Jesus commanded, which is the main commandment is to love God and love your neighbor. And we're trying to do that here. And I brag about you all the time to people that I meet. Um, And so, um, you know, he says that um, it's okay for God to repay with affliction the people that afflict you. Um, God is not... um, afraid of violence. Um, you know, th- hopefully you've read the Chronicles of Narnia. If you haven't, uh, please do, or get the audio book. I'm listening to the audio book again with Hero, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and I'm always impressed by the deep theology of C.S. Lewis, a layperson who was not a priest or a pastor or anything, a theologian, but um, he was a poet and a professor of poetry who... Um, Wrote this story about Aslan. Aslan is not a tame lion. When Lucy meets Aslan by a stream, she's desperately thirsty, and Aslan is sitting there by the stream, and she says, um, "You know, I'm really thirsty," and uh, and Aslan says, "Well, come take a drink," and she says, um, "You know, I'm afraid you're a lion, and I'm a little girl." Are you a tame lion? And Aslan says, No. And she says, Do you ever do you ever eat people? And Aslan says, I have devoured kings. And I've devoured kingdoms. And I've devoured all sorts of things. Um, and she says, Well then I, I better go find another stream to drink from, because I'm afraid. And Aslan says, Um, there are no other streams. This is the one you have to drink from. And so her encounter with Aslan, who defends her, who then fights for her, um, shows that he is not a tame lion. Um, I've said this a million times, so please, if you've heard it before, just, you can, you know, don't worry about... uh, Anyway, I don't know, listen again or whatever, or don't listen... But God is not just a big muffin in the sky that we can all just take a bite from. Um, And that is the God of a lot of Christianity today. Either God is like an angry old white man with a big beard who hates women and hates LGBTQ people and hates people and hates everyone who doesn't do what some guy says to do on this earth. Um, That's one vision of God. And then there's like the Santa Claus God who rewards the good and punishes the bad. And, you know, you're never really sure where you stand with that God. And then there's the muffin God, which God is just like this great big muffin in the sky that everybody takes a bite from and feels good and feels happy and nice and everything. But the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that Paul is writing about, um is not afraid of paying back people who afflict you, people who attack his children. He is not afraid to take care of them sometimes. Um, And I've seen this, and we've all seen this kind of divine justice. We're not always sure when it's happening um, or why it's happening, but God will protect us. And sometimes that means that God um, does things to people that stops them from Inflicting more damage and more evil in the world, um, it is a severe mercy, but God can do that kind of stuff, and ultimately, the heart of God is love, so at the heart of God, there is this love that burns even for the even for the enemies of God, even for the terrible people. but God will intervene sometimes and and afflict those who afflict you, as Paul says here um And then he says there's this great revealing that will happen in heaven where Jesus will come with his mighty angels in flaming fire um, to establish justice on the earth, that everyone who's rejected him, who's rejected his love, will experience this um, flaming fire, this purification fire. Fire is is." scary and dangerous and burns things up. But in the Bible, generally speaking, it is a purifying kind of thing. There's pain involved in it, but it's ultimately purifying. When you're smelting silver or gold in the furnace, it's uncomfortable and you gotta wear the gloves to get near it and the face shield and all that because it's really, really hot. But ultimately, it is getting rid of those impurities so you can have pure gold. And so when God's judgment falls on the people who have attacked his children, um, it is a purifying thing for them, too. Um, uh, Anglican Christians have rejected the Roman Catholic doctrine of purgatory that was very popular in the medieval world, that somehow, um, because you were a sinner, you would have to stay in this intermediate state after your death for sometimes thousands and thousands of years and maybe if you're rich enough you could endow a number of private masses to be said there were priests that basically lots of priests who did this for a living they would say about a hundred masses a day because some rich person paid them to do that after they you know left that in their will um anglican christians have rejected that doctrine of purgatory But all of us Anglican Christians believe that there is some sort of purification state between our death and our resurrection and our life with God after we die, that we don't just bop into heaven the way we are now, because I don't want to live for eternity like this. I do like myself. I like a lot of parts of my personality, and I like my curiosity, and I like learning things, and I like looking up things on Wikipedia and I like running and bicycling and you know I like there's a lot of things I like but like I don't want to be in heaven and kind of like you know be judgy and petty and you know upset that somebody's more successful than me um I don't want to be in heaven and and like look at my body and see things I don't like to see and wish I was different and I don't want to be in heaven and worry that, you know, people are talking about me or like, there's a lot of things that I want gone from my life in when I be, when I'm for eternity. Um, I really do. Uh, And I want me to be me. And I think we all want ourselves to be ourselves, the true part of us, the part that God knows and loves and created. But there's a lot of parts of me that I really would like to leave behind. And that Purgation, not purgatory the way we think of it, but that purgation of fire, where some of that is burned away, I think is something that Anglicans can certainly believe in, um, in that God is going to take care of us. God's going to um, get rid of all that stuff so that we don't have to live, um, you know, in that in some of the um, petty ways that we live. And I'm talking really about myself. Um, here more than anybody, and um, in, in that I know my own faults um, better than any of you. It's always so- something when someone criticizes us, someone criticizes you, and they're mad at you about something. And I don't know about you, but I always think when that happens to me, I always think, you know, there's a lot worse things about me <laughs> that you don't know about, <laughs> that you could criticize me for. Um, you know, this is like the least worst thing that... that um, that you're criticizing me for. Um, And I want that stuff to go away. I want to be free from that. And in little increments here on this earth, God is doing that to me. God is sanctifying me, making us holy. That's what we're doing in the Eucharist. We're feeding on Jesus so that he becomes part of us, part of our DNA, part of that cleansing um, of our lives. The, The ritual of baptism, the reaffirmation of our baptism is a way of washing that stuff away while we're alive, while we're here. But ultimately, we look for that day um, where we meet God face to face, where we behold him as a friend and not a stranger. And that is the hope of uh, we have in Jesus. So this great day of the Lord is coming, where Jesus will come with his saints, with us, in his entourage, um, and, God, and Paul is praying that they'll be ready for that, that they'll be ready. Um, you know, when we think about um, all the things that are wrong with the world and all the things that are wrong with us, um, it is even hard to imagine a world with this kind of justice and love in it. It's hard to imagine sometimes, but we have to um, as Christians because that's what Christian hope is. It's a a reawakening of our imagination so that we can live as if the kingdom is already here. We can love our enemies because ultimately our enemies and us are going to be eating at the same table someday. We can try to work on forgiveness um, in the little kind of ways that we can. It's not easy. This stuff isn't. But we can live as if the kingdom is already here. Um, knowing that ultimately it will be here and will be part of that. So this Advent, I hope you can look forward to the day of purgation to the day of purifying fire where all that stuff that has dragged you down will be burned away and the gold and silver and precious stones of your life will be there for all to see. And, um, Speaking of C.S. Lewis, um, when somebody asked him if, um, if people that have lost limbs, amputees, and people that have had horrible disfigurements in war, as many did in World War One, that C.S. Lewis was part of, and prosthetics were pretty terrible. And there were a lot of people with prosthetic faces and, from World War I um, that look, were very disfigured. And the people you know had to live a much more public life Back then, on the streets of of wherever they lived, because there wasn't um, TV in the same ways that people could sort of avoid crowds. Um, so there were a lot of really disfigured people walking around from the wars and also diseases that people had that were extremely um, disfiguring in a way that um, caused them shame and and feelings ostracized and things. And so they asked C.S. Lewis in the Resurrection. Um, will people still be missing legs and be have these scars and disfigurements and those sorts of things? And his answer was, I'm not really sure, but I do know one thing. In the resurrection, I'm going to get back all the books that I loaned out to my friends that they never gave back to me. And he said, and all my friends who I loaned these books to, who scribbled in them in the margins." And uh, which he annoyed him greatly, um, God is going to turn those scribblings and underlinings into gold calligraphy. And then he said, and I wonder if God will do that for the people who have lost legs and have these facial wounds and injuries. I wonder if God will do that for them too. that will turn their scars and their missing limbs and the wounds of their lives into beautiful gold calligraphy that will be the badges of honor in heaven, the gold, the silver, the precious stones. Um, I think that's how the kingdom of heaven works, because that's how it works for Jesus. When we meet him after his crucifixion and resurrection, he introduces himself with these scars, and they are real scars. They are real wounds, but they are beautiful because they are the scars of love. And that is what will happen to you and to me. Amen. Today, the church remembers the life and witness of Ambrose. Ambrose um, is a very cool name. They used to name a lot more kids Ambrose probably the famous uh, Civil War veteran and author Ambrose Bierce is one of the, maybe one of the last Ambroses out there. But he was a bishop, Bishop of Milan. Um, he was the son of a Roman governor of Gaul, France. And in 373, he himself became a governor of Upper Italy, which was a big deal, um, he was brought up in a Christian family, but he was not baptized. Um, After Christianity became the um, official religion of the Roman Empire, um, everybody kind of wanted in on it because the only way to hold an office was to um, be a Christian at a certain point. And so the church leaders realized that, like, if everybody's a Christian, then, like, nobody's a Christian. Um, We kind of have to, like, make sure that people know what they're getting into because Christianity is still following Jesus. It's not just, like, you know, something you have to do to get a government job. So they had instituted this catechumenate program um, where often people would, especially if they were involved in government, would delay their baptism till after they retired um, because governors had to kill people and they had to be in charge of armies and often um, that was felt to be antithetical to Christianity and therefore you wouldn't get baptized until after you were done um, wielding the sword of violence on behalf of the state and community. So he wasn't baptized, even though he grew up a Christian. He became involved in the election of, of a bishop of Milan um, as a mediator between the battling factions of Aryans and Orthodox Christians. The Aryans were not um, white supremacists. That's not Aryan nation spelled differently. Um, A-Y-A-R-A-N for white supremacist Aryans. But um, these were followers of Arius, who is a bishop whose um, main point was that Jesus was not God and the Trinity was foolishness and wrong. And you're worshiping three gods and not the one true and living God. Jesus was not God. Jesus was a begotten and created being, um, but certainly not God to be worshipped. And so Arius um, rejected the Trinity and the Orthodox party of the church um, was in favor of the Trinity. It had already been ruled at the Council of Nicaea that um, the church was going to believe in the Trinity. That was going to be our thing. But um, emperors would sort of get cozy up to Arius and his followers and then the empire would be Arian for a while. And then Uh, The emperor's wife would become Orthodox, and then they'd go back to Orthodox. And this was happening all through the 4th century, back and forth, back and forth, and no one could really solve the problem. Um, It was a real huge split in the church, as you can imagine. Um, Really, people that believed in the Trinity and people that didn't believe in the Trinity. Um, And the, the main thing that Arius, the main selling point of Arianism was their beautiful hymns. Arius was a hymn writer and wrote a lot of really good hymns. They were so good, in fact, um, all of Arius's hymns, that the Orthodox Party banned singing hymns in church um, by the congregations for like a thousand years. Only professional choirs were allowed to sing approved music in church for a really, really long time and many... um, cathedrals and churches in North Africa and in Europe um, around this time. So because of Arius, the church lost a great gift of congregational singing for a really long time. And that's one of the things that came back in the Reformation. Martin Luther wrote a lot of hymns too, um, as well as other English reformers. So a lot of our hymns come from that Reformation period, but there aren't a lot of hymns from the from earlier times because Of Arius. His hymns were so good and so non Trinitarian that um, they banned singing in church, basically, um, which is really sad. Anyway, um, he became the uh, mediator for this election, trying to negotiate between two parties, and um, whoever would win was going to control the church in Milan. So he had a vested interest in that going well. Um, there was a mob, a riot. Imagine that happening today, that church politics were so controversial that people formed up in the street in a riotous mob. He came out to speak to this riotous mob to obey the law and not do violence and hurt each other over a church controversy. Um, And suddenly both sides, this is how the story goes, raised the cry Ambrose shall be our bishop. Ambrose shall be our bishop. He protested, and they got even more enthusiastic and excited about him becoming bishop. So they rushed him into a church, baptized him, and ordained him a bishop on December 7th, 373. So you don't even have to be baptized to be a bishop in the church. And I think we would do a better job in selecting bishops if we picked bishops who had never been baptized before. That's sort of something to think about, or at least had never been a priest before. Um, I I think in some cases, in Ambrose's case, it was a really, really good idea. Um, He rapidly won renown as a defender of orthodoxy against Arianism um, and was skillful in working on musical settings and um, hymn writing for these choirs that were competing with the Arian hymns that were just so good. Um, He introduced antiphonal chanting to enrich the liturgy um, and wrote straightforward practical teaching to educate his people in matters like baptism, the Trinity, the Eucharist, and the person of Christ. His persuasive preaching was an important factor in the conversion of probably the most famous Christian of the early Middle Ages, Saint Augustine of Hippo. Um, It is is Ambrose preaching that Augustine goes and listens to while he's a Manichaean or sort of Gnostic um, believer. He goes and listens to Ambrose preaching and he's starting to get convinced. And one night he's walking by the study or the rectory or church where Ambrose lives inside the church, and he sees him awake studying, and he doesn't disturb him. But Ambrose was studying at night because he wanted to be a living stream of, of, uh, of teaching for his people. Ambrose does not fear the rebuke of emperors, including the hot-headed Theodosius, whom he forced to do public penance for the slaughter of several thousands of citizens of Salonica. So um, Ambrose stood up to the powers that be and um, demanded public repentance. About baptism, Ambrose wrote, After the font of baptism, the Holy Spirit is poured on you. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and godliness, and the spirit of holy fear. A meditation attributed to him includes these words, Lord Jesus Christ, you are for me medicine when I am sick. You are my strength when I need help. You are life itself when I fear death. You are the way when I long for heaven. You are light when all is dark. You are my food when I need nourishment. There are several hymns attributed to him, the eternal gifts of Christ the King and Number 233 and 234 in our hymnal, and O Splendor of God's Glory Bright, number five um, from his hymn. So we thank God for this bishop who was not baptized, but God used to lead the church into a new era of strength and love and peace. God, who didst give thy servant Ambrose grace eloquently to proclaim thy righteousness in the great congregation, and fearlessly to bear reproach for the honor of thy name, mercifully grant to all bishops and pastors such excellence in preaching and faithfulness, in ministering thy word, that thy people may be partakers with them of the glory that shall be revealed. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Ghost, one God, now and forever. Amen. When I was an Army chaplain, my soldiers asked me all kinds of questions about God, life, relationships, the Bible, and answered them as best they could. They also called me Padre. Welcome to the Dear Padre podcast, where today we're in Advent, and we're talking about the end of the world.